0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the board of Multnomah County Commissioner's board briefing. Vice Chair Jesse Beeson is excused. Audience members, I wanna start by asking you to please silence your electronic devices. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions today. Today's briefing is on the preschool for all financial modeling and implementation update. So while we have our um, presenters come up, I'm gonna give a few um, introductory remarks Um, In 2022, we made clear commitments to voters. We promised to build a high quality, culturally responsive preschool program that is available to every three and four-year-old in Multnomah County by 2030. We promised that the program we built would have a mixed delivery model. That means that families would be able to choose the program that best fits their needs, whether it's a smaller home-based setting that provides a child with preschool taught by a person who looks like them or speaks their language, a center that offers the scheduling flexibility to working parents' need, or a school-based program that makes the transition into school settings easier. And we promised that as we built the program from the ground up, we'd focus on enrolling our priority populations. Black, Brown, Native American, Indigenous, and all children of color. Children who speak languages other than English. Children with developmental delays and disabilities. Children living in or at risk of placement in foster care children from families experiencing low incomes, and children experiencing homelessness. I am incredibly proud that as we look ahead to the third year of this program, we can say that we are definitely meeting those promises and are on track to achieve universal access by 2030. We have successfully created just under 1,400 slots in the first two years of the program, exceeding our goal at this point of 1,100, and we expect to add at least 900 more next year. We are confident that we are on track to meet our overall slot target of 11,000 by 2030. We have successfully built a mixed delivery model with a healthy blend of school and center-based programming alongside smaller home-based providers that are often able to grow their businesses into larger center-based programs. And we have intentionally focused our enrollment efforts in these early years on those priority populations, as you will see in the data our team is presenting today. Those are promises made and promises kept to our community. At the same time, we've learned valuable lessons during the first two years of this program's implementation, and our community's child care landscape is very different from that of our community before the pandemic. For example, our community lost 20 percent of its child care capacity during the pandemic, and we have had to adjust our strategies in order to accommodate the additional capacity building that we need and we're making changes to the program, some of which you'll hear about today to incorporate the lessons we've learned about what families want from their programs and what children need in their classrooms. Lastly, with two years of data under our belt now, we have a much better sense of the costs of the program and what we'll need to achieve universality by 2030. From the beginning, we've known that this program would collect more money than needed in its early years, and that those collected funds would be needed for a limited period of time after we achieve universality, when the program's costs are expected to exceed its revenue. That's why we've been careful to set aside those excess funds in a dedicated savings account, where they will be available when we need them during the several years when we expect to collect less than we spend. For all of those reasons, last summer, I asked the PFA team and our budget office to begin a fundamental reset of our revenue and cost modeling. That modeling work was completed earlier this year, and I'm looking forward to the discussions we as a board will have today and in the future meetings on what this data tells us. Now I'm excited to hand it over to Leslie Barnes, our preschool and early learning division director. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Madam Chair and Commissioners. For the record, uh, my name is Leslie Barnes. I'm the I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Director of the Preschool and Early Learning Division in the Department of County Human Services. Um, I'm glad to be here with you all today for an implementation update about the Preschool for All initiative uh, passed by Multnomah County voters in November of 2020. We also have County Economist Jeff Renfro with us to provide information on updated financial modeling and scenario planning. What I'm most excited to share with you today is that the initiative is on track. I'm proud of what we've accomplished so far. We have met our short-term goals and are on track to meet our commitment to Multnomah County community of universal preschool access by 2030. Now I'm gonna turn it over to Jeff to walk you through the modeling and financial planning.
2: Uh, Thank you, Leslie. Uh, I'm Jeff Renfro from the budget office. I use he, him pronouns. If we wanna go to the next slide, please. Um, so as, as the chair said, um, starting in the summer, we were directed to, to update all of our um, modeling and um, we did all sorts of really cool stuff that I'm not going to get into right now, but at a very high level, um, one of our goals was to align our Actual spending, um, our budgetary assumptions, and then all of our forecasted assumptions going forward to our program offer structure, which is already aligned to how the program was actually being delivered in the community. So there's a really seamless um, ability now to share information kind of in the categories and the ways that the program staff is talking about it out in the world. Um, it also made some of our, um, program offer writing a little bit easier, and then I think more than anything, it gave us an opportunity to revisit every single assumption that we've ever made about Preschool for All as we were kind of building everything back up. Um, it made it easier, much easier to run scenarios, um, if we wanted to explore different ideas or even just better understand the underlying dynamics on the financial side of the program, so we'll talk about that more in a second. But where we'll start is um, with our updated baseline model. So this is what comes out of the updated modeling. Um, And I'm going to walk you through how to interpret this graph and then the next graph after this. So the blue line is our anticipated revenue by year. It starts with the actuals on the left side, and then it moves into the budgetary assumptions and then the forecasted values as we go to the right. The um, pink line is our anticipated expenditures for each year. And as a reminder, the the structure of the program is, is based on the idea that in the early years of the program, as the number of slots are ramping up, we expect to run surpluses. As the slot growth increases rapidly, as we get closer to full universality, we expect our expenditures to grow much faster than our revenues for a period of time there. So then we'll eventually start to run deficits. Um, the the pink line and the blue line look like they're relatively close, but at its peak um, in 2031, we expect an operating deficit of 60 million dollars. So there's a um, you know 50 million dollar deficit in the next year. 40 million dollars is one of the other uh, annual deficits we're expecting. So. Um, we, we have a pretty large target for what we're using that dedicated savings that we're setting aside in the early years to offset in the later years. And then on the right side of the graph, you'll see that the anticipated revenue and the expenditure start to diverge. So what's happening there is, um, once the program achieves full universality, (coughs) excuse me. The updated demographic modeling suggests that the number of 3- and 4-year-olds in Multnomah County will stay flat for the foreseeable future, so then our expense growth is basically providing the same number of slots, and it's just the inflationary factors on a static number of slots. So We expect our revenue, typically over time, to grow faster than the inflationary um, uh, pressure on a static number of slots. So we would expect our our revenue and our expenditures to diverge over time, and then on the next graph you'll see the expected fund balance flips up and would just continue to rise year after year after that. So, um, if we want to go to the next slide, we'll kind of put all of this in a different context.
3: Can can we ask questions as we go along? Or yeah, we have time today. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Um, On that last slide, using your revenue smoothing, I mean. that would make the two for a while be going like essentially. It doesn't matter that one lines over the other because you have um, a fund balance that you, it's. It's not like in the year in which um, the 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 revenue is less than the expenditure that you wouldn't have that fund because you'd just be pulling funds from the fund balance.
2: That that that's exactly the plan. So we and for the revenue we're, um Collecting in that specific year versus the expenditures we expect to have in that specific year, um, we would expect a deficit, but then we would be pulling from our dedicated savings that we're setting aside now to fill that gap and to continue to run the program. Yeah, that, That's fundamentally our, the, the implementation strategy. Um, so if we want to go to the next slide, please. So the green bars are the expectation of the number of preschool for all seats provided. And then the blue line is our expected fund balance. So this is our dedicated savings um, for each year. So as you see, Going back to the left side of that first graph, we are running those surpluses in the early years of the program, so we're building up that fund balance. And then as we get to um, full universality and those deficits we're expecting, then we're spending down the fund balance. So I think the the takeaway from this graph and the versions I'll show you when we talk about our scenarios is that, as long as that blue line stays above zero, it means we make it through the full implementation of the program, and we're able to implement it the way that we're planning to. If the blue line falls below zero, it means we run into a period where we have a deficit, and we don't have enough dedicated savings set aside to offset that gap, and we're changing the program or cutting the program in some way. Um, uh, the thing I'll note here is that, based on the updated modeling, our the place where our um, fund balance bottoms out in 2035 and 2036 is higher than what we were anticipating before. Um, we'll, we'll come back to all sorts of ways to think about that as we move through the scenarios. But um, the, the takeaway here is we expect, in our baseline model, we expect to be able to fully implement the program as planned. Um, and then we're, we end up with a higher fund balance than we were originally anticipating. You want to go to the next slide, please? Um, so, I've, I've talked about in the past that we know that this tax, uh, that the collection is going to be really highly concentrated. Um, so I've said we have a real interest in finding out more about who our top payers are. And then also, the, I mean, the number one question I get about this program when I'm outside of this building is, are people leaving because of this tax? So. Um, in November, the city of Portland was was able to produce a report for me that um, we, we've been waiting for. And it's basically a report that shows um, uh, there's a line for each tax filer for each tax year. And it's data that's pulled directly from the preschool for all tax returns. So I'm, I'm able to see who's paying us and what's happening to them over time. So the first thing I did when I got this data set is I looked at our top 1,000 filers in the first year of the tax. To be in our top 1,000, you paid us more than $28,464. Our top 1,000, that was 2.7% of our returns, but it was 53.9% of our revenue in the first year. So confirming what we we already knew, it's very highly concentrated. When we look at those top 1,000 filers and then we look at what happened to them in the second year of the tax, there's 11 of those filers who are just completely missing from the tax roll. So they either didn't make any income or they moved away. We just know that they they disappeared from our tax roll. Out of those top thousand, 602 of them paid us less than 50% of what they paid us in the first year and the second year. So I'm just going to start calling that they paid us significantly less in the second year than they did in the first year. When we look at tax year 2022, the second year of the tax, when we look at that same threshold of $28,464, we had 708 payers who met that threshold. Um, I'm I'm not reading too much into the fact that that's that much less than Um, 1,000. There's a few caveats there, which is um, people still continue to pay this tax are, are paying it late. Um, so this data is from November. Um, looking at the data, I know that in December and January, we we still had more late filers for tax year 2022 than we. I think we're going to get as we move forward with the tax. Um, so my expectation is that number is, is a little bit higher now. But um, out of those 708, um, high-level tax filers. 88 of them were brand new. They're people who didn't pay us um, the tax at all in the first year. So this could be people who moved here, or they're people who just made significantly more money in that second year than the first year. And then out of that 708, 379 of them are people who paid us um, more than 50%, uh, 50% more than they paid us in the first year. That's kind of an awkward sentence. But they're people who paid us significantly more in the second year than they paid us in the first year. So Oh.
4: Okay. When, when you're done with
2: it. sure um, so so my takeaway from this is this really matches our expectations so in talking to especially the state economist's office um, at the very high end of personal income tax returns there's just a lot of churn and and that's based on the fact that Um, For these top payers, they're generally not people who are just like going to work and collecting a regular paycheck. They're people who are selling a property, they're cashing out stock. They're things that happen in this really sort of lumpy way and don't necessarily need to happen year after year. So my expectation going forward is that we will have hundreds of people coming in and out of our sort of top-level payers every year. Um, And that matches, I think, the experience of of personal income tax collections in other places. I think the key data point that um, I'm I'm really curious to see is of the people who paid us significantly less in the second year than they paid us in the first year, um, I can see how many of them um, filed their tax returns as a partial year payment. For a whole bunch of reasons that are, are really technical, um, I'll just say it's hard to take a lot of information from that partial year designation, and I've done a lot of work with a bunch of people to try to figure this out, and I, I'm not sure there's much to take from it. So I think the data point that we'll be interested in is in the third year of the tax, looking back at our top 1,000 filers from the first year, how many of those people disappear in the third year of the tax, suggesting that maybe they've moved away? Um, So I'm done with this slide of Commissioner Meyer and a few.
4: Go ahead. Thank you. Um, I uh, had two questions first, and I... um, Yeah, it's a pretty basic question, so I apologize if this is one of those, you know, duh, Sharon. (laughs) Um, But are the... When you're talking about the filers, are these filers in... Multnomah County, because this covers the the um, residents of three counties are taxed, right? Or no?
2: It's income derived in Multnomah County. So it, it could be, it's people who either um, live or work in Multnomah County, and then people who work in Multnomah County who derive their income from a Multnomah County source.
4: Okay. So, okay. So it's those. Got it. Are they... Are the people paying the tax, so are, when you're looking at, you know, the comparison between where, um, whether people are paying the tax now, coming in and out of the tax rolls, are you looking at their actual addresses, like if they are in fact moving away, um, to understand where they're coming from and going to,
2: so um, so I could give you a really long, long answer. I'll try to keep it short. But but so um, I'm on um, a state revenue advisory committee, and um, we just at the the last meeting we had, um, and and this is a group that includes um, it's. Uh, CPAs and tax lawyers from the private sector, and then it's also people from um, the State Department of Revenue who who know this income tax return data really well. And so we, we had a whole long conversation about um, looking at the addresses of filers and looking at their full year versus partial year status to see if we could, um, at the state level, if we could make conclusions about people leaving the state. Um, And then by extension, if we could use that information to match our preschool for all filers to state income tax returns. Um, And then to also see if we can see, like, is their address changing or or what. Um, And the conclusion was that there's just too much ambiguity there. Um, so in, in any one year, because even if you're filing a, a partial year payment, the place that you're filing the, like the address on your partial year payment, it doesn't necessarily have to be the place that you've moved to. It could be, um, so there's just a lot, it's hard to tell what's going on with the data. And there's a, there's a longer answer there, but I'll just say, I think the experts in the state have been working on trying to figure this out, and they're saying it's too hard to tell from the data to draw big conclusions in any one year, which is why I think looking at where what happens to um, the people as they move from full-year filer to partial-year filer, what happens to them in that third year, I think will tell us what has happened to them.
4: Yeah, thank you.
3: I have a couple questions about this uh, slide. It's actually um, just uh, interested in looking at the data a little bit um, differently. Um, So just a standard way of looking at sort of tax um, uh, receipts would be through like categories versus just the top 1,000. I know you're focused on the 1,000 because there's a lot of money there, but I'm also interested in how this tax is falling on um, those that aren't paying twenty eight thousand, um but are paying substantially less but still are hit by it i'm wondering if it's possible to get um sort of the, that the chart of like here's the distribution of you know how much we're getting for people who have taxable incomes or single from 125 to 150 um and 250 what, whatever your normal increments are um just to get a sense of the distribution um you know are we focusing on just a slide focuses on a very small number. I mean, I think about 800,000 people in the county and um, we have a thousand filers that we're focused on. So I'm interested in the other piece. And then from that, I'm also interested in a future discussion of the commission about indexing, because usually it's pretty standard um, to have in- index the amount, because just like we index for um, sort of cost of living adjustments on our expenditures, um, essentially by this not having an index on it means that essentially the tax applies to people who actually, make, you know, in, in real dollars are making less than what was the initial uh, threshold. So when, when I get that distribution, I'll be interested to see, obviously indexing pr- won't impact the top 1,000, but it would those who are just right on the cusp who by virtue of just cost of living increases that may have got may be pushed into paying the tax. Um, so I'd be interested in that as a future conversation, but also looking at sort of what where our distribution curve is.
2: Yeah. And I have that information. I I have it in like the messy Mm -hmm. analysis version and I don't have it like a super shareable. So I can I'll I'll make something that is is more shareable. Great. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Go ahead. Thank
5: you, Chair. The, along the same lines, Jeff, when we get that data, so I'm curious, when we look at the other remaining 43%, uh, I'm assuming, well, these would be lesser income people, right? Because they're not paying at the 28000 plus. Uh, but I'm wondering, by that very nature, if it's easier to track, because those people don't have you know, large financial, you know, stock market accounts and things like that. Uh, would would those be a better indicator of being able to track people that are actually leaving Oregon?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a a great question. And um, uh, so we had in the first year of the tax, we had about thirty six thousand filers, um, and um, we the the data set I have, I can I can see all of them. Um, so so we can break it out like that. Um, I will just like, as a quick caveat, even our, our lower income payers who are paying this tax are still in the top 10% of, of incomes in Multnomah County. So, um, it's, it's all relative. Um, I, I do think there's something to be said for even in the, the population discussion and population change discussion we've had, um, you know, the census data shows that, um, the majority of people who have left Multnomah County are people who are under the threshold for the Preschool for All and the SHS tax. So I think there's, there's a bigger conversation about cost of living and, and all of those other factors. And that might bite a little bit more at people who kind of like barely make it over the threshold. So uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, that was exactly my point. So th- that would be great. Thank you. Just just to follow up on that question, you're answering the question, because you said the majority of people who left would fall under threshold. But the majority, what's the percentage of people, if you had 36,000 filers out of how many?
2: So, oh, um, uh, I think it's like 200,000 in Multnomah County. It's in that zone, but I
3: can't. 15% of the people are paying the tax?
2: Uh, no, it's, it's less than, it's... Um, Nine. We had the total number of Preschool for All filers was 9% or the total number of tax filings we got for Preschool for All was 9% of the total Multnomah County um, tax filings. But it it gets complicated because we have Washington County people who work here who are paying it. But just to give you an order of magnitude, so I I think it's 200-some thousand total in Multnomah County.
3: So my question is, say say it's 9% and... We have about two percent population decrease. I mean, obviously, then the majority of the people leaving would be because the majority of the people don't pay the tax. So my guess question is, is like, is the is other people leaving? Is it more than? Um, is a percentage? It's
2: like disproportionate. Yeah, yeah, Thank um, you. yeah. I, I don't know off the top of my head that's something because
3: that to me that would be the measure versus. Of course, they're going to be less because ninety percent of the people don't pay it. Um, so. I'd be interested in sort of that number and tracking it again, looking across the lower levels, because without indexing, it's going to start hitting more and more.
2: Yeah, and ECHO Northwest has done a bunch of the research on breaking out um, population change by, like, income level, so I'll check in with them. All
0: right. Thank you.
2: uh, Next slide, please. So I'm going to walk us through a few different scenarios, um, but I, I want to start with like a sort of high-level point here, um, which is um, having run a bunch of different scenarios, my personal takeaway from this is that um, being two years into the implementation, we have two years of real data, which is wonderful. It feels like a luxury compared to kind of what we were working with um, as we were getting everything started. Um, it's still only two years of data, and because we're we're thinking about this implementation differently, because really, um, I think of 2036 as being our target, as like getting all the way through, um, getting to universality, and then getting through our dedicated savings period. So that's a long period of time. And if we make, frankly, pretty small changes to our assumptions that happen year after year after year between now and 2036, small changes lead to really big impacts over that forecast period. So just as one example. in January, when I updated the revenue forecast, I increased our, our base assumption for the revenue by a 4.8%, which for a tax is volatile, I would describe as a minor tweak. Um, that led to an additional almost $100 million of expected revenue between now and uh, the end of that implementation period. Um, so, so, I'm gonna show you a bunch of scenarios. Um, I, I could come back two years from now and say, we need to make another relatively small change and reduce our baseline revenue assumption by by 5%. And I'm wiping $100 million off of our assumption for the full implementation. So I, one of the goals of these scenarios is to, to show you some specific things that we're thinking about, but then also just to give everyone a sense of the magnitude of the numbers we're working with. Um, so the first scenario we're going to talk about is um, what happens if we follow the recommendation of the governor's task force and um, observe the uh, tax moratorium window? So the way that the governor's task force define that window, the um, tax increase that is in that was in the ballot initiative and that's in the code for this tax would go into effect on January 1st, 2026 for for um, tax year 2026. We would collect most of that in fiscal year 2027. So this looks at delaying that tax increase by one year. Um, so the difference between this and the baseline graph we showed is in fiscal year 2027 rather than having another year of surplus it it gets really close to being basically even Um, and then we still go through this period where we have expected deficits if you want to go to the next slide please Tasia So then the real question, I think, is what happens to our dedicated saving strategy? So as I said earlier, the way to interpret this is as long as that blue line stays above zero, it means we have the resources to fully implement the program. So even in the tax moratorium scenario where we delay by a year, um, the blue line stays above zero, um, and we're able to fully implement the program. We want to go to the next slide, please. Um, this looks at what happens if we just never increase the tax, um, so um, what we see here is that we get through the, the period where our anticipated expenditures grow rapidly as we get to, to full universality. Um, there's no bump in our anticipated revenue, um, so eventually, because of that dynamic where we expect our revenue to grow faster than our expenditures, kind of all things being held equal over time, um, our revenue would catch up. I think it would take until you know 2045 or something like that. But um, if we want to go to the next slide, Tasia, sh- shouldn't be a surprise looking at a chart that shows years of deficits there in this scenario. Um, we are not able to fully implement the program by 2033. Uh, we um, no longer have enough fun, uh, dedicated savings to offset the operating deficits we have in those years. So it would mean that we would have to make cuts or somehow change the implementation of the program. And then uh, one more, one more scenario we'll show you. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so this looks at um, if we had a recession in fiscal year 2028. I want to. Provide a couple of really strong caveats at the beginning here. I don't think we're going to have a recession in 2028. I just picked a year in kind of the near term to look at this. Um, the other thing that is not incorporated into this modeling is generally with a tax like this. Before you have a recession, you have sort of a run up in revenues. You have kind of this like temporary euphoria before everything crashes. Um, so I, I haven't incorporated any any run up into this. So I'm I'm kind of only catching one side of the volatility here. Um, But my specific purpose in doing this is if we assume a recession in fiscal year 2028, um, we would expect our revenues to decline by $90 million between fiscal year 27 and 28. Um, As we get further into the program, it is not unreasonable to think a recession would have a $100 million annual impact. So I'm just really just throwing a big number out there to kind of get everyone oriented to it. If we want to go to the next slide, please. Um, even in this scenario, we like s- this blue line stays barely above zero. Um, but with all the caveats that I talked about, we're not assuming a bump in our pre-recession revenues. We're not assuming we use any of our reserve or contingency here. So, so um, I think interpret this one with with a grain of salt. That's
3: um, a question. Uh, this is more generally about the green bars, So, if the we're if we're what, 11,000 approximately um, once it levels off. Is that assuming, and this, so this preschool for all is, uh, the expectation is, I think he said that this, it's actually 70% of the three-year-olds and... 85%. And 85 for the four-year-olds. Does that mean you're assuming, so let's take the four-year-olds, the 15% are going to be not in a preschool-for-all paid preschool
1: program, either like in a neighborhood co-op or in Head Start? Or or staying home. I mean, there's always going to be parents that decide they don't want
6: their right. children. And I would just add, so in those saturation rates, that's participation in a publicly funded slot. So those numbers do include Head Start and Preschool Promise, and in all of our modeling, um, those um federal and state investments remain consistent at this point in time so this saturation rate is based on um the experiences of other universal preschool programs across the country knowing that some families will always choose to keep their little ones especially their three-year-olds at home or especially in higher income families may choose to continue to pay privately for preschool
3: yeah because guess I'm I'm confused so let's just take um head start sp- slots or let's say a co-op preschool where um, the co-op maybe where the parents are paying um, just directly or the head start it's that they don't receive any sort of grant from preschool for all. That is not that's not in this green bar.
6: This green bar is just preschool for all funded slots. And one of our future slides will show you how that stacks on top of the head start and preschool um, promise slots. Um, to get to a full number of publicly funded preschool slots in our community to reach that universal access,
3: so you think by I'm just I'm make sure I understand by fy thirty one, only fifteen percent of the preschoolers will not be in a preschool a paid preschool for all slot. only fifteen
6: percent. That 85% of four-year-olds will have access to a a publicly funded preschool slot, whether that's Preschool for All, Preschool Promise, or Head Start.
3: It it wouldn't be access. It would be actually... Yes, they
6: would have a slot.
3: Have a slot. Um, And that's... um, Tell me, like, where the comparative. That seems awfully high for people to... Like, that would be... Seems like a wholesale departure from um, utilizing Head Start and also, like, just... Private Peach Schools, the current network. So it seems like it'd be com- almost completely flipped. Is that t- where? Um, I'm interested in your comparative places. Um.
6: Yeah, so our team, I can get you more research about the the literature review that our team did around um, the different universal preschool programs across the country. We especially um, looked at Washington, D.C., because they have similar eligibility requirements. So I think that's one of the important things, distinctions in terms of Head Start, is because their eligibility requirements are so much more stringent um, than preschool for all, we do, at this point in time, expect that higher saturation rate. And I think that's another place that will continue to better understand the um, as the program continues to be implemented, are there any adjustments that need to be made around those assumptions around our saturation rate? Yeah, because
3: Washington, D.C., having lived there, it's like a very different, I mean, I would expect a very different environment. Um, and if it's preschool for all, what, what tell me about the eligibility requirements you're re- referring to that would make us different than Head Start.
6: Sure, so uh, primarily it's income. Um, be, the only eligibility requirements for preschool for all are that your child is three or four by September 1st and um, that you have, they have a parent or legal guardian living in Multnomah County.
3: And Head Start has all the federal.
1: Great, thank you.
2: Uh, that's it for me, Uh Broken Leslie.
1: Okay. Uh, next slide, please. Thank you, Jeff. Um, So Preschool for All has successfully reached our priority populations in the first two years of implementation. We're going to share about the children that are enrolled this year and how that data compares to last year. This data that I'm going to share includes the children enrolled through our application and enrollment system called BridgeCare. It does not yet include the two PFA programs that enroll families separately Portland Public Schools and Kairos PDX, which represents 150 of our just under 1,400 slots. We have combined enrollment data ready in March. <clears throat> Each year, we utilize enrollment data from October to learn about the children participating in Preschool for All. Preschool enrollment naturally shifts over time, so some of this data may have changed slightly. Uh, Next slide, please. So this uh, is a snapshot of enrolled children. Ninety-six percent of Preschool for All slots are filled. Um, As I mentioned, these enrollment numbers shift slightly throughout the year as families move or their circumstances change. You can see that we have substantially more four-year-olds and three-year-olds enrolled this year. This mirrors what we saw last year and reflects a national trend of higher enrollment rates for four-year-olds when compared to three-year-olds. There continue to be more boys and girls enrolled. Male preschoolers make up about 52% of this group of children served. We also collect data for non-binary children. However, this number is fairly small and is masked to protect a student anonymity. Uh, Next slide, please. On um, these next two slides show additional data about the children enrolled in Preschool for All this year. Below each of these figures, you can see our previous year's data. 89% of families have incomes at or below 350% of federal poverty level. This is a proxy for the self-sufficiency standard and equals about $105,000 a year for a family of four. As a reminder, all children, who are three or four by September 1st and have a parent or legal guardian living in Noma County are eligible for preschool for all. There are no income eligibility requirements. Children who currently have the least access to high quality early learning experiences are prioritized in the first available slots we offer in the community. Next slide, please. This year, each family had the opportunity to choose six preschool options on their application and rank them in order of preference. 76% of families were able to enroll in their first choice program, and 93% were able to enroll on one of their top three choices. 73% of children enroll, identify as black, indigenous, or children of color. We will show you that data disaggregated on our next slide. 38% of children speak a language other than English at home with. Or different languages represented. Our outreach and application processes are working to reach our priority populations, including our investment in our four culturally specific family connector organizations. We fund full time family navigators at Latino Network, NEA, ERCO, and SEI. Family navigators are trusted sources of information about preschool for all, and they outreach to families and guide them through the application and enrollment processes. We've also achieved these results with a switch in application systems. Our first year application, excuse me, was a minimum viable product or MVP that allowed us to have basic functionality that we needed while a longer procurement process for a long-term system was underway. In the second year application, we utilized this new technology system. In both years, we heard positive feedback from families about the ease of the application process. Next slide, please. Here you can see a comparison of this year's enrollment by race and ethnicity in pink compared to last year in green. Generally speaking, we have enrolled a pretty similar population. We enrolled slightly fewer, a 5% decrease of children who identified as white alone and a slightly higher percentage of children of color, especially Latino, Hispanic, African and Slavic. Note that most of the differences in percentages were 2% or less, though we saw a large jump in enrolled African children, 14% increase. Next slide, please. We wanted to spotlight one of our additional priority populations, children with disabilities and the many challenges that their families often face. Not only do these families have a hard time finding and keeping care, they also are more likely to have quit change or not accepted a job due to challenges finding childcare compared to families who do not have children with disabilities. Inclusion has been one of our growing points in our first 18 months of implementation. We know that holistic solutions are needed in order to include children with developmental delays and disabilities and that systemic supports need to be in place to have a successful ban on preschool suspensions and expulsions. For us, systemic support means having dedicated staff who are helping teachers to create inclusive environments and navigate systems. In addition to a coach focused on classroom practices, every Preschool for All site has an inclusion coordinator who can offer warm and rapid support for providers. That inclusion coordinator is is available to visit the site, offer guidance and help with resource referrals and coordinate across systems. All pilot sites have access to low barrier inclusion support funds that are based on the needs of the individual children. These funds can be used in multiple ways, equipment such as a weighted blanket at nap time, communication tools, or an additional staff member to support that teacher. Our inclusion work extends to children who may be experiencing mental health challenges or exhibiting behaviors that adults find challenging. Just as in K-12 systems, preschool providers are serving children who are struggling from the impacts of poverty, racism, and pandemic-related issues. Preschool for All funds early childhood mental health team in Multnomah County's health department. The early childhood consultants on that team include both prevention specialists and treatment providers for children and their families who need that additional support. Next slide, please.
3: Before you move on, can I ask about the inclusion? Yes. Um, If you look at, like, just um, the K-12 data, there's a disproportionate um, suspensions and expulsions of students uh, with disabilities or special needs students, and I'm curious um, how you're monitoring... the suspensions, the, the the ban on the suspensions, how do you know they're not happening? Or how do you know students uh, preschoolers aren't being excluded even before they um, right. get into the system?
1: Yeah. Well, for one, the preschoolers, um, we do the enrollment, so the provider can't pass on a child because of perceived need, and so that eliminates that screening out of children from the start. Next is that with that coaching provided with the CCRNR on classroom practices, you have someone that can help monitor and talk through challenges that the classroom is having. We also assign that inclusion coordinator right away so that if there are struggles happening, we can provide some wraparound supports for those. And so I would say over time, there's been very few children have not been able to stay placed in their classroom. And it hasn't been a situation where a parent is surprised that that hasn't happened. We've been able to actually place children in other placements. So we're really thinking that it should be a very small instance where a child cannot be placed in a typical classroom with their peers.
3: Thank you. And then, just my last question is about um, ADA compliant facilities, because that that's another way in which um, students get filtered out of um, systems that, the, like, our facility can't handle it. So, do, do we have ADA? Sorry, are the facilities that we fund slots at required to have be fully compliant with
1: ADA? So there's a couple ways to think about that. Um, One is some of the smaller facilities don't meet all of the, you know, accessibility requirements that ADA requires. But when we're looking at facilities funds, we'll be able to support those even smaller facilities that want to be more accessible via ADA accommodation. And I think when we talk about child care centers, they have a different, right, lens or um, standard that they have to meet to comply with ADA as far as ramps and accessible bathrooms. But I think when we get to facilities fund, we'll see people saying, hey, I, I recognize this need and I want to make this accommodation to my facility. But I think those larger sites, there is already an overlay the city requires for them to make those accommodations. So when we get to these larger facilities, you'll see more of that. But the smaller in-home providers may not, might have stairs or, or whatnot, and they're not and are under they're the same. Anticipating limits. that they be required? Um, so per licensing requirement, if there's someone providing care in their home or preschool in their home, they would not have to make Unreasonable accommodations to their residents, but if they're looking to expand to a larger facility, those requirements would be required by the city by code.
3: And is that a um, a number of slots that that would be required? I just ask because it's 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 hard to say we're inclusive with if actually the slots don't require that because right. it just automatically
1: excludes right. some. Right. Right so there so when we're thinking about Ada we're thinking about the breadth of Ada so we're talking about children with disabilities that choose a smaller facility and maybe it's not accessible and if that person wants to add on, but I think the majority that you'll see. will have those physical Ada accommodations so larger already have to have that now. Um, But these very small um, other kinds of programs will have other ADA overlays that they will have to meet as far as, like, if someone has a disability or someone has diabetes, they would have to take that child as well. So I think there's, there's different kinds of levers that get pulled depending on the size and type of your program. Okay, next slide. So PEL um, has a research partnership with Boston University's Center on the Ecology of Early Development, or SEED. This partnership is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. SEED functions as our external evaluators and are a critical piece of our overall evaluation strategy for this program. One of the data collection efforts that SEED leads is a survey of PFA-enrolled families about their preschool experience, as well as a survey to our pilot sites. Responses were a little lower than we'd like last year. It was our first time doing the survey. That said, we really think valuable information uh, was gathered, and we're still working with C to implement a number of strategies this year to gather more responses to this uh, critical information. Overall, you will see that both families and providers were very satisfied with their preschool for all experience. As a part of a new public education system, We also learned that many of our providers are working with higher numbers of children in our priority populations than they have historically. Many of our pilot site providers have highlighted this as one of the main reasons they joined PFA in the first place. And this also means a lot of learning and growing for everyone so that families and children are receiving the highest quality of services and supports possible. Next slide, please. Another question,
3: sorry. Reference teachers are the um, just not familiar with the program requirements. Are they actually licensed teachers or do they have a have a particular credential?
1: So there's a balance. So since we have a mixed delivery system, of course we have folks that work in school buildings that have to have a teacher's credential. We also have a um BA goal for all sites so that the goal is that they be on par with someone that's working in a school building. So in early learning, you can have what's called a step 10. So we have a credentialing registry that kind of looks at what your experience and your education and training is and gives you a, a mark on that registry. So a step 10 is equivalent to a bachelor's degree. And so our goal is that the first years of implementation, you'll have uh, teachers with something like a credential, an AA degree, and then be giving them those uh, opportunities through our workforce development dollars to achieve bachelor's degrees as necessary. But we also know that requiring a bachelor's degree sometimes pr- prices out are kind of you see teachers of color not participating. So we don't want to make that the only way we recognize that educational experience and expertise of teachers. And so there will be a couple different ways you'll see that show up.
0: And I will say that that this that whole piece about credentialing and teachers' qualifications, all of this, was a huge um, topic of conversation for the Preschool for All Task Force. We had many meetings on that, many back and forth about how to balance the the kind of traditional. Um, academic right credentialing with the um, the knowledge, the experience, and wisdom that exists within community? And, and how do we create a system that doesn't actually um, create barriers for people who are either already in the field doing good work or who want to come into the field? Um, so I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that has gone into both the work of the task force, but also as we're looking at the implementation and, and doing that. And I think the 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 strong investment that we have in um, allow making education pathways accessible to people is is a big piece of of, of maintaining that balance.
3: Yeah, just uh, so wondering, like a future is that um, is um, for saying, there's different ways to measure high quality preschool, um, but certainly, um, and it's not just the credentials, it's like, but how you're actually delivering the program, which you often learn through experientially. Um, and just, you know, who would be most, it's it we talk about um, the importance of early childhood um, programs, preparing um, young children to be ready for, for school. There is actually a whole program um, that is you usually get through a license, you know, through a licensed program and getting a credential um, and I guess in the future I'll be interested is like wh- what students are going through a program that have people who have licensed credentials um say an early early childhood credential versus the students and and how ready they are for kindergarten if they have somebody who didn't have a credential um and I guess also, also I'm my thinking if we're talking when we use the word teacher that almost always implies to people that they have a license a teaching license because it is a credential um i mean most people who are teachers have a master's degree so just thinking about like who's getting served by those who have um credentials and then and, and who's not and whether that's students are ending up prepared for kindergarten differently based on the type right writer they have.
1: So, so, so wondering for the future and- Right, so one of the things I'll add too, it's, it's not just, um, credential or the degree. And so we really invested a lot of money in coaching because we know that there's teachers in all kinds of systems that aren't the best teachers, right? And so regardless if they have a BA degree or or a CDA or an AA, that coaching is really a critical part of giving feedback on their practice. And one of the things that SEED is also looking at is those experiences of those Black and brown children in the classrooms to give feedback about what they see that may be different from other children's experiences in those classrooms. And so to your point, there will be lots of opportunity and time to really talk to people about practice and not just training and not just BA or AA, but really how are you really impacting that child's ability to move forward and have a, um, a really impactful experience as positive, but before they get to kindergarten. So we can talk more about the ways that we support teachers. And to your point, teachers are also in licensed child care facilities called teachers that don't have, they have experience. And so they honor that as well but we can get you more information on how we're supporting that too.
3: Thanks. My last question on this point is just um, in the future, will we have a kindergarten readiness assessment that to be able to assess the quality of um, the, the, the slots? If, um, if somebody's, if a, a young child's been through a Malibu County Preschool for All program, how ready are they for then for kindergarten which seems like the assessment of of learning academically ready for kindergarten but like the whole social emotional um piece
1: of it as well but right do do we have a measurement of that? So there's a couple things I'll say about that. So um, programs will be doing screening and assessment. So there'll be an assessment of learning um, and using approved curriculum that will assess learning at the preschool level. But children, and I think it's actually being redone, there's a kindergarten assessment that's done when they get there. So I think there may be a way where we can track children that have been, so right now it's just track, have you been in preschool? They'll ask that question to see how they are doing in that first year of kindergarten to see if the correlation between preschool helped that, with readiness or not, so I think we can check in on um, those assessments that are already taking place to actually tap into that data to see how our children are doing compared to children that haven't experienced preschool. Thank you, Thank you.
0: Commissioner Meyer. Did you have a question? Next,
4: the satisfaction data.
0: Okay, do you want to speak to that? Yeah.
4: Um, I i'm curious sorry i i'm yep. curious about whether the you know oh did you guys present on the view yeah and no,
1: no not okay yet. okay all right sorry
4: that's okay did, yes go ahead wait did you yeah yes okay yes, like, we, yeah. Did. <laughs> we did we like, did we did um so i guess uh a couple of these things you know i, I don't think it's um It doesn't surprise me that much that 100% of the providers who are being paid to participate in Preschool for All want to continue. I don't think that's um, a huge shock to anyone. Um, And also the families who are getting free preschool it is not surprising that I I actually would have thought closer to hundred percent would be um satisfied with that. So I'm curious about the eight percent who were not satisfied and what the um what the issues were there and if you have could speak to that or have that
6: information. For sure. Um and I should have mentioned earlier for the record, my name is Brooke Tolton Timmons, and I use she, her pronouns. Um one of the biggest areas we saw from families who responded to the survey was wanting a deeper family-school connection. So increased communication. I know as a mom myself, you kind of want to know everything your three-year-old is doing all day long. Um, was the primary place where we saw um, families expressing interest. But what we're doing is that was a survey, and now there have also been focus groups to um, collect additional qualitative data to really understand and unpack what were some of those things that families may have been less unsatisfied less satisfied about. And so we should have that data back from our external evaluators in the next couple of months to really dig into and better understand um, what kinds of changes need to be put in place, both from our end and also to support providers um, to make changes in their practices.
4: That's great. I I think getting that kind of information is really helpful to understand, I mean, constructively um, what it is that the, you know, that That we would want to see to improve on the programs or to help yeah to help support them um because the that they're satisfied with these is itself is kind of seems like it would be somewhat self-evident
1: i I did want to add a little bit to that because we are asking and really um, partnering with these independent business owners, many of them in ways that an entrepreneur probably is not used to having. So I actually was a little bit surprised that they were 100% satisfied because we're asking them to really change practice. We're, we're have coaches. There's a lot of things, you know, that we're asking providers to do and learning the ways that we could do those things better. I think that, you know, when you are someone that's used to operating a certain, when you have a coach now giving feedback on how you're interacting with children and there's contracting and there's feedback and all the things we're asking um so we've heard that that is a lot but they still want to continue so i think some of that you know when we get that feedback i was surprised that we got such a high percentage because we were asking a lot of new work. And remember, too, that a lot of these folks could do without us. They actually had full programs, many of them. And so they didn't need the financial aspect of what we're offering because they were actually already in business. I mean, so I think I just want to give a little bit of a perspective of what it means to like have your own business and now contract with the county and be asked to do a lot of layers of work. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to take you to the next slide and talk about some of the key early takeaways after the first 18 months of implementation, that's Kids on Carpets. Um, The first is that we're reaching and enrolling our priority populations through our outreach strategies, application processes, and investments in the Family Connector organizations. The second is that we successfully developed a mixed delivery preschool system. Preschool for All is building the idea that families should have the opportunity to choose a preschool experience as a right for their child. This includes finding a preschool that is culturally responsive, where families feel welcome, seen, and valued. The community members who develop Preschool for All believe that developmentally appropriate, joyous, and inclusive preschool experience can happen in all types of early education settings. This includes Head Start, child care centers, schools, and home-based family child care. This creates a mixed delivery system, and this system prioritizes family choices, what we heard strong in our planning for this initiative. Many other public uh, preschool funding does not include family child care, in addition to systemic racism, which creates access barriers. One of the reasons that family child care is excluded is because it is complex and creates more work to include these providers. But they are also often the programs that families choose first and are essential to expanding culturally responsive preschool opportunities in Multnomah County. The majority of the independent, multi-site, large capacity learning programs that exist in Multnomah County actually started as family child care providers. We sometimes get questions about why Preschool for All doesn't just invest in school districts to do this work. Well, school districts often um, only, well all all, only offer six hours of programming for a typical school day and no care during the summer. For working families, the schedule just doesn't meet their needs. In our current modeling, we are assuming that 60% of participating Multnomah County families need a full day year round program. Many families, especially from communities of color, don't feel ready to drop their babies off in traditional school classrooms. Um, A core focus of Preschool for All is preparing children and their families to be successful in the K-12 system. School districts are an essential part of Preschool for All's mixed delivery system, and we're proud to be in partnership with them, but they can't and shouldn't do it all. The next key takeaway is that as we continue to increase the number of Preschool for All slots, we will do this in three ways. We will convert private pay slots to preschool-for-all so that these slots become accessible to families. Full-time high-quality preschool in Multnomah County can cost as much as $20,000 per year and is out of reach for most families. We will enhance existing slots to ensure that they meet family needs. The Department of Early Learning and Care at the State of Oregon is a licensing body for childcare sites that offer preschool. Some program types are exempt from state licensing because of their short program hours. Enhancing slots means investing in those programs who want to convert exempt slots to licensed slots and transitioning many half-day slots to longer days to meet family needs as well. We will also continue to create brand new preschool slots in Multnomah County. So far, over 500 of our slots are brand new. That effort will require sustained investment in building our community's capacity, which we are achieving through our facilities fund, early child Child infant stabilization fund, and workforce development programs. All three of these strategies are important as we grow to universal access, and we will share more details in a few moments. Number four is that it's important to remember that building a new team and system take time. We are building infrastructure internally and externally. Our longest serving staff member has been in her role for three years and most of our team is much newer. When we begin a new contract, that organization needs time to also hire their staff and establish their program. And at the same time to do this work well, we are focused on continuous improvement and how to be nimble and responsive to our partners and system needs. One example, of this as uh, beginning mid-year slots in fiscal year 2025. With the start of the preschool facilities fund this spring, it is important that programs who aren't ready for September slots don't sit empty for a full year. To support this, we're adding an additional application opportunity for preschools to become part of PFA that opens next month, and the mid-year slots will start for families in January of 2025. Another way that we have been nimble and responsive is reorganizing our staffing structure and adding an inclusion and retention team within the preschool and early learning division. We made that change because of takeaway number five. Supporting providers to create inclusive preschool experiences has been one of our biggest challenges so far. Many preschool programs have historically screened out families who have children with disabilities or expelled children with behaviors that are challenging for adults. Now that these providers are part of a public system, we are asking them to change their mindsets, practices, environments, and their relationships with partner organizations, such as early childhood special education. This is a huge shift, and we're continuing to find ways to meet these needs, which include the additional funding and inclusion coordinators on our team who can offer warm and rapid support for providers that we mentioned previously. The final key early early implementation takeaway that we want to share with you today is how we do this matters. The relationships that our team builds, the strong infrastructure uh, that we're able to put in place, the responsiveness uh, that we're able to demonstrate, and the experiences that providers and families have today and next year matter now and to the future. We are working to build trust in the community and doing our work intentionally. Sometimes that means slowing down a little, like coordinating with Oregon Housing and Community Services to have an aligned RFP for our facilities fund or starting a provider out with four slots instead of 10 to ensure that they have their inclusive practices in place before they serve more children with disabilities and doing this all while using a racial equity lens. So now I'm gonna pass it to Brooke for the next slide. Thank you.
6: Thank you, Leslie. Um, Leslie just shared some of our key lessons so far, and now I'm gonna share as what we see as some of the primary risk factors along our journey to reaching universal preschool access in Multnomah County. So universal preschool access means that there are enough slots for all interested families in Multnomah County to participate in a publicly funded slot, and preschool for all is one piece of that puzzle. We need to continue strong coordination and partnership between Head Start, Preschool Promise, and Preschool for All. Our Head Start partners were engaged in early preschool for all planning and two Head Start agencies are already preschool for all pilot site providers. We have complex political and resource challenges to work through when it comes to issues such as staff wages and coordinated enrollment across different programs. We are committed to that difficult work and doing it in partnership with our early learning hub, early learning Multnomah, and to the creative solutions that will be needed to build a strong universal preschool system. It's important that we remain committed to our intentional growth timeline in order to create a strong mixed delivery model and remain focused on racial equity. Building and keeping the trust of providers and families is essential to our success, which means being thoughtful about our investments and giving them time to work. It also means ensuring that providers are ready to offer culturally responsive and inclusive care and that they receive the supports that they need to help children thrive. In order to keep scaling up, we need to increase the number of early educators, support staff, preschool providers, and preschool facilities across Multnomah County. And we have to help the Preschool for All tax base and larger community understand our plans, strategies, and vision for universal preschool access. We know that having broad public support is important to our efforts and implementation success. Next slide, please. To illustrate our connectedness with other preschool programs, this graph shows how Preschool for All builds on state and federal investments in preschool. It's important to emphasize that our role is to leverage these existing investments, um, and we are not replacing Head Start or Preschool Promise, which are represented in the blue and pink parts of each bar. And it's important for our continued growth that these programs remain strong. So the preschool for all um, goal for each year is the green part of the bar and the number of slots, the preschool for all slots, is in black. We have exceeded our slot goals in both year one and in this current year. We also anticipate that we will exceed the year three goal of 2,000 slots. Our overall timeline and goal is that all interested families in Multnomah County will have access to a publicly funded preschool slot by 2030. This is the same goal from the original planning for Preschool for All, and we are on track to meet that goal. In 2022, we adjusted the slot growth timelines in the years leading up to 2030 to reflect the impacts of COVID-19 and the slow recovery of the childcare industry. As of this fall, there are still 20% fewer childcare providers in Multnomah County than in February of 2020. Preschool for All's intentional slot growth timeline was designed to allow for system supports to be put in place as the number of slots grow and to mitigate the negative effects of expanding too rapidly, which can include losing infant and toddler slots in the community and putting small programs out of business. When New York City implemented universal preschool, they had a 20% reduction of available infant and toddler care and all of those slots lost were in high poverty areas. Our planning currently assumes that state and federal funding will remain consistent. Our modeling is also dynamic and will be adjusted if there are future preschool investments made at the state or federal level. Next slide, please.
3: I just asked a question about something you just said, it's not actually in the slides, but in response to one of the questions I asked about why the costs were increasing, part of the answer was infant and toddler stabilization, um, my understanding was this was just for three and four-year-olds, and so I'm curious um, what funds are going for um, sort of zero to zero to three or zero to two, um, and I'm just curious like whether that's part of the the permanent mix because I don't think that's what people thought they were voting for because that's that's more I guess childcare versus like preschool. So um, in what instances? is the county subsidizing 0 to 2 slots and and by how much
1: so you, you share the numbers. So uh, there's a couple of things that we have to think about. I don't know, we talked about what happened in New York, for example, infant toddler care has also been very difficult to find always. And so what happens is some initiative like us comes along people say, I'm just not going to do that anymore because it's easier and it's more lucrative for me to do this over here. So what we do is we do subsidize infant toddler care. Mostly what we're looking at too is as a business, there's a pay equity law for one. So if there are two people doing similar jobs, so they're an infant toddler teacher and there's a preschool teacher, they're supposed to make the same wage. So we're not paying for that slot. But in order for people to participate, businesses to participate, they have to be able to make that wage differential. So that's one way that we subsidize uh, that infant care. So it's a part of the same program, right? And so we would not have those entities be able to sign up with us if they could not make that pay equity um, investment.
0: And I will say this was another um, thing that was a very um, clear um, direction that we were going with the Preschool for All um, ballot measure and the work that came out of the task force. As we as we did the work on the task force, we looked at how universal preschool had been um, rolled out in other areas like Washington, D.C. and um, New York City and Seattle and others. And it was very clear that the way, for instance, New York City and Washington, D.C. rolled it out where they weren't inclusive of any supports for the infant and toddler care, that they lost child care providers. They lost those infant and toddler slots. Um, because that wasn't, you know, considered factors in the program. So we, you know, were able, we had the benefit of being able to learn from the experiences of other jurisdictions that had gone first in this to realize, um, we have a, a child care desert for infant and toddler slots in every single county in Oregon and that um, in order to be successful in order to have um in order to avoid the unintended consequences that we saw in other jurisdictions we had to have some um, protections for those infant and toddler slots so we wanted we didn't want to grow preschool at the expense of infant and toddler care and so that was built in um in the initial preschool for all plan and and as the as the program has been rolled out
3: yeah certainly as um parent of three and also having served on the Child Care Commission, um, I know how hard uh, it is to, um, even in normal times, um, support uh, infant slots, um, just because the ratios are um, less, um, for obvious reasons. Um, I guess I'd like more visibility, because I I don't think um, it's a... I don't think there's a lot of transparency and that's not saying it in a negative way but just like so what slots are we subsidizing um and sort of how, how long is it just a, a transition um because i also look at the amount that we're spending on the preschool slots for the whole program and it's like right now just about 10 percent of the amount of revenue that's coming in so I'd, I'd be curious um and i don't need it right now but just um how many of those non-three- and four-year-old slots were um, subsidizing and how long and sort of what's the what's the criteria, because as you said, it's a private business. I mean, some of these are, bus- I mean, they're businesses, not versus, a, like, say, a school district. And so I'd just be curious about that particular piece and having some transparency related to that. Thanks.
6: Happy to do that. Next slide, please. So as Leslie shared earlier, there are three ways that preschool for all will grow the number of slots. So stabilized slots are slots that converted from private pay to make them accessible for families. This stabilization means that providers have a steady source of funding and allows them to strengthen their business and even expand. 20% of our year one providers expanded it into a new location for year two just with having stable funding. Enhanced slots and this is gonna get slightly wonky for just a second, Um, so our half-day slots that are exempt from state licensing requirements. As Leslie mentioned, they're shorter days, Um, and so then they do not have to meet those broader licensing requirements that full-day programs do need to meet. So our hope is to support these providers to become licensed and to lengthen their day um, so that we can increase the preschool supply that meets families' needs and the new slots are slots that didn't exist in the community prior to preschool for all and new slots can be in existing um can be with an existing provider or a new provider and new slots can also be in a new location or as part of a renovation that allows a provider to serve more children so we estimate there will need to be a total of approximately 4,000 new and enhanced preschool slots in multnomah county to achieve universal preschool access And there are a few key assumptions embedded within this estimate. Um, And the first is the percentage of families that will choose a publicly funded slot when Preschool for All reaches universal preschool access. And this is called the saturation rate. Um, In our modeling, we currently estimate that the saturation rate will be 77.5%, which is 70% of three-year-olds and 85% of four-year-olds. In Eco Northwest's original estimates around saturation rate, they estimated that to be 75%. So we have increased that in our updated modeling by just a little bit. The second assumption is the conversion rate for current private pay slots to become preschool for all slots. And right now we're currently estimating that conversion rate to be 80%. The total estimate of new and enhanced slots needed will likely evolve over time as we continue to learn from our implementation efforts. I think one of the things that we are hoping to get across today is that in our modeling, we're trying to have this really strong planning and also to be flexible and to continue to learn as we um, continue to grow. So in in our few minutes, I will show you the, um, how we're planning for those new slots to be added year by year. Next slide, please. So slot growth is only possible if we are simultaneously building capacity. Two of the most important areas for for us to increase capacity are the number of early educators and the number of preschool spaces in Multnomah County. When we talk about workforce development, it's important to start with educator wages. The minimum salary for any staff member working with children in a Preschool for All funded classroom is $20.91. And included in the ballot measure is a yearly rate increase for this minimum salary for educators. This change alone has opened up new opportunities. For the first time, our Regional Workforce Investment Board is including early education as a viable career pathway. We've contracted with Work Systems to utilize their network of career coaches to recruit, train, and support new educators. We are also partnering with ERCo on aligned educator recruitment and support strategies. There's not one single way to become an early childhood educator, so it's important that our investments meet a wide range of needs. We have PFA-funded bilingual community college navigator positions to help recruit and retain students in the early education programs at Mount Hood Community College and Portland Community College. We also fund scholarships for educators to pursue professional development and or a degree in early education. Our Pathways programs works with preschool providers that would like to participate in preschool for all, but may need additional support to get ready. Our Preschool for All Facilities Fund launches publicly at the end of next month. Build Up Oregon, a coalition of community development financial institutions leads this work. Build Up Oregon will administer the Preschool for All Facilities Fund and offer guidance for qualifying providers seeking to improve, expand, or build new facilities. Childcare facilities have long been overlooked by funders and rejected by banks, resulting in a lack of early learning spaces and many facilities that need renovation. This historic underinvestment, plus the increased number of children that Preschool for All seeks to serve, creates a significant need for more preschool facilities. The partnership with Build Up Oregon will help the county reach its goal of a publicly funded preschool slot for all interested families by 2030. The fund will provide both technical assistance and grants and loans to all types of providers, including small businesses and school districts. In this fiscal year, we have $16 million to fund construction and renovation projects. Build Up Oregon will also be administering the Oregon Housing Community Services Co-location Fund for affordable housing. They'll work with developers and preschool providers to increase the number of preschool facilities co-located in affordable housing. This makes multiple facilities funds available through one application. One of the many reasons that we're excited about this work is for it to be a catalyst for business expansion. Family childcare has historically been a starting place and an incubator for preschool providers. As Leslie shared earlier, the majority of the independent multi-site centers that currently exist in Multnomah County started as family child care. New facility funds will create easier access to capital dollars for all providers and accelerate their growth. Next slide, please.
3: So is there a set mix between grants and loans? And um, this doesn't really relate to non sort of non-profit organizations that are running um preschool programs that might get facility grants but is it contemplated that we might just give grants and i mean basically um, to a for-profit business
6: we do there um i'm sorry we saved the question again
3: will the fund be providing grants funds to for-profit businesses yes versus loans
6: we will be providing both yes
3: and the in my questions mm-hmm. said that they'd be required to keep those slots for a certain number of
6: yes yes They will, and there's a service requirement that increases over time with a larger amount of money um, that you receive the the longer you'll need to be committed to participating in Preschool for All as a provider. Next slide, please. We shared earlier that about 4,000 new and enhanced preschool slots will be likely needed in Multnomah County for Preschool for All to reach universal access. That will be possible with continued investments in preschool providers and capacity building initiatives. This graph shows estimates of how those slots will be added over time. The yellow bars and the corresponding numbers are the new and enhanced slots added each year. The turquoise bars show how those new and enhanced slots add up over time to reach the approximately 4,000 slots that we need. Preschool for all... Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. We have not done a distinction between those new. It's really about the number over time. We haven't distinguished between those two in the numbers.
1: necessarily, I'll say, Um, those enhanced slots were those folks that may be in a community center or someplace that's not licensed. And so there's a huge barrier for them to do, any even up to the six hour day currently. And so we are trying to figure out how many, because again, and they're also not on the radar necessarily either, because they're not regulated in the same way licensed care is. So there's this It's hard to pull that apart because they do become new because they're not offering what we consider the preschool day, the six hours. Um, And there's hard to find who they are because they're not regulated in the same way. So we're kind of putting them together because they become new offerings for preschool as well. So there could be someone that's in a community center that has a building you want to move to. They become a new slide. So I think it's hard to pull all that apart because it's hard to find who's doing like a two hour play kind of enhanced kind of preschool versus the people we know that are already regulated in a way. So I think I think it would be very hard for us to figure out who those people are that we're going to switch from enhanced, providing some level of service to completely new.
6: I also think it's a place that we will the facilities fund hasn't launched yet, and so it'll be place we'll be looking very closely with our partners at Build Up Oregon to understand, here's what those needs are in each of those areas, and here's um, what growth we see over time. Um, we don't yet know how many of those um, they're called recorded preschool programs. Those license exempt programs are even interested in switching to a preschool for all model. So there's more data that we really need in order to have solid numbers for you. On and we're going
1: to look at who applies. We're going to do some outreach to figure out. But we again, no one. We haven't had an opportunity yet for the facilities fund to kind of tease them out. So we're going to say, hey, there's an op- there's an opportunity, and maybe some people will come forward that were that aren't on our radar. Okay. I guess. Um. I guess what I'm
4: Getting it, it it seems like in the application process that people would indicate whether they are building on something that already exists versus um,
1: they will starting something new. It's That application actually isn't available to the public yet. So we're talking about for the facilities fund, which actually hasn't been available yet. So we're not able to pull that. They will be asking that, but we don't have uh, that data yet because it's not available to the public.
6: Maybe the missing link, Commissioner, is that um, those recorded preschool programs, they aren't able to apply yet for Preschool for All because they're not eligible, they're not meeting our requirements. Um, So then they're not sharing that data back with us because they're not, eligible as a pilot site because they may have a facility or they they may have a facility barrier to breaching licensing or they may not be interested in changing their program model
1: so we're hoping the application will tease them out and they'll come forward because now there's an op- opportunity for that facility to become licensed so then they can participate in preschool for all
4: okay i i'm i guess i'm i'm just i'm confused obviously about a, a couple of things here, both. And in terms of the facilities, um, what's what even has been, has any of our funding for facilities been expended at
6: all? No. Just the funding for the administration, for the administration um, part of the program to be started. So basically everything's ready and there's a soft launch underway right now. So our current providers are able to complete an intake form and start that intake process um, to test out all those new systems that have been put in place. And then the fund will publicly launch at the end of March.
4: Okay. Uh, I'll ask my questions offline so I can formulate them but I'm I'm just where my confusion lies is you know I think the it's more conceptual I guess between new enhanced slots and then pre-existing slots cuz I sort of anticipated when this first all came up that there would be a bunch of you know we desperately needed a bunch of new preschool slots so that everyone could be served and i i think i've been surprised that many of them have been just transformed from existing preschools so it's just sort of like okay now we're funding them, they're in this program, but they already existed. And then others that kind of exist that people may even be very happy with for their preschools, but we're going to add to those, too, so that the actual number of new brand new slots we're adding is just much less than I anticipated. And it also the way that it kind of intersects with some of the other publicly funded preschools is still confusing to me, but I uh, hopefully that can be clarified over time.
0: Yeah, I think the important thing to know is that we are building a universal preschools program, which means every three and four year old in Multnomah County has access to quality early childhood education. Some of that creation of getting to universal access is, is transitioning slots into being publicly funded so that People don't have to pay out of pocket for that. Some of it is getting existing slots um, to meet the quality requirements that are necessary, um, as well as some of the wage requirements and some of the other things to be part of the preschool. Some of them are, are as as Brooke and Leslie have um, discussed, about taking something that actually doesn't qualify for preschool today, like a a two-hour play group and and giving them the resources to become a preschool slot not a playgroup slot but a but a preschool slot and then there is because we know that we didn't have enough preschool slots for every 3 and 4 year old especially those children in our priority populations that we're focusing on that we are going to have net new slots created but we weren't we knew going in i mean there's there would be no reason to create 11,000 new slots um when we already have existing programs that we are that we're focused on transitioning into preschool for all slots
4: no i i appreciate that um i guess that if i'm it, it seems like for that in terms of the priority population and needing new slots that then the transitioning existing slots and enhance like where where they exist already that we should be that that's great and we should be funding the new things and then even for the population you know not 350 percent over the federal poverty line but even a lower bar than that I, I it I'm just trying to put the pieces together and it 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 seems different to me than what i had thought it was going to be so i think that's where i am i'm just trying to understand it myself
1: and some of the enhancements are not just facility connected to your point, increasing quality, talking about a curriculum that meets state early learning standards for programs that are not utilizing that. That might just be licensed and think of themselves as a babysitter in a way. And so how do we enhance that so that those children are ready for K-12? So I think that's some of the conversion, not just physical space, but the conversion of the mindset of the program and what their goal is in that program and uh, thinking about hiring staff and what those staff qualifications are. There's a lot of things that convert. Um, I know it seems like just one for one, but really it isn't that. I mean, there are some questions that were being asked around quality that probably programs haven't thought about. Um, I think so, I mean, we, we can talk more later yeah, about what that absolutely. was like. Yeah. Since
3: this is the last slide, I just have a couple questions. questions. Um, throughout um, the larger presentation, when you're talking about license slots, are you talking about the licensing that for childcare centers? <laughs> um, which are relatively, um, just having served in the child care commission and it was a while ago, but the, the, the standards were fairly low just to be licensed. Um, so I just want to make sure I understand that because those requirements, um, I say are not, are not super high, um, or, and they're more child care standards versus, preschool. So again, right. I think right. people think preschool right. and voted right. for preschool. It was, we're going to make sure all children have our like, kindergarten mm-hmm. ready. Right. You know how important that is. Um, so I'm interested in longer terms, like what our measurement is for kindergarten ready for kindergarten readiness. Um, again, mm-hmm. the childcare standards are more about licensing standards are more about childcare, Great. which is very different. Um, cause that could actually be your, like the, the children are safe, yes. <laughs> Um, but it, it's very, it's very different from an early childhood education program. Yes. And I'm not talking to a- academics because a lot of it is the social, preparing social emotionally, um, but it is also preparing students to be successful, young children to be successful in kindergarten. So it seems like we're, if that's not one of our metrics, we're, it's a big miss for what we, are are promising. Um, I think what what got promised. So that's one thing. Um, and then I'm going to pivot back to the very uh, Jeff to your your charts. Um, while the charts show, um, I think the sort of the sort of the paralleling of the, of the revenue and the expenditures. I just fundamentally, um, it relies, it's relying on a lot of modeling. Cause you've, um, <laughs> to have those numbers match up because when I look at just the, the ex- current expenditures, um, and even in the out years when we're at 11,000, the amount that's going into the actual slots versus everything else. Um, so the, the numbers 38 million or some, some number like that. Correct versus 300 million that's coming in. And then even in the out years, it still seems there's this big gap between the dollars that are going into the slots, the actual providing direct service versus the rest of the numbers. So there's a little bit of a distance in, I trust your modeling, Um, but I think we're gonna need to um, be able to share a lot more in detail, like what that actually means because gross slots versus the amount of money that's coming in. There seems to be a big gap. And you did a great job explaining it to me in private. Um but it took it took an hour and um and it's so I think we're gonna we're gonna need to be able to share more about how that works and how it's not having a negative impact on I think some really you know head start is um I've been a great program and it, it also tar- hits the same target population and so you know how are we building a program that also doesn't um, negatively impact another very successful um, preschool program and so I th- to me those are two big questions um, that need further sharing with the community because think there's a lot of Fusion. There's not enough. There's not that many slots. But a lot of money is going into it. Not that much money is going into the slots so far. And it, it takes us an hour to explain to the average. community. How that works? We um, probably lost them after the first five minutes. Um, so that that would be one thing. Again, just the long-term impact also on Head Start and more being complementary um, versus both. Both programs are focusing as. On the same priority populations and make it more complementary, so that we don't undermine very well established program. And that has all sorts of parent, um, you know, moving parents into career paths also, which is great. So that was just my closing. Thank you, Commissioner
0: Stegman. Thank you. Did you finish your slide?
6: I think I think we got the most of it. I think the last thing, maybe I will just quickly say thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Is just that um, those estimates are conservative, and I think we'll learn a lot much a lot more once we um, once the facilities fund has been established and starts distributing those funds. And we will expect those numbers to shift over time. We'll share those updates as soon as we have them. Thank you.
5: Great. Thank you. Uh, So I want to change direction a little bit. I I see Theo in the room and uh, I've been part of something called the common application. Uh, And I'm just wondering if you could update me, is there an intersection uh, between folks applying via our common application for Preschool for All? Is that a conversation that's um, been had or been looked at? Not yet. We'd
6: love to be involved in those conversations. All right, Theo, you got work to do. (laughs)
5: And for those of you who don't know what the Common Application is, it is a one-stop, eventually, place where people can access county services that they may not even know exist. So I'm really excited, and I know Serena's office is is leading that work, and along with our IT folks, and really getting the county into the 21st century around technology and access to services. I guess I was trying to understand when you talked about private pay conversions. And certainly we want people to have access to Preschool for All uh, that don't have the financial means. But can you maybe like a 30,000 foot view? I'm kind of like, do we want to subsidize people that can well afford? Is that the direction? I, I just wasn't. Because it sounds like eventually the private pay is going to go away. Is, is do i understand
6: this correctly or not we are building a universal preschool program so any family in multnomah county regardless of income will have access to a free preschool slot that is the goal
1: okay
5: so i mean it's kind of like public public education. school yes. that's what got i was going to say yes okay got it um and then that the so who who goes to half-day slots? So you have three- and four-year-olds, or is it a different amount of time based
6: on if you're a three- or four-year-old? No, it's all dependent on family choice. So families choose on their applications the programs that they're interested. We have a limited number of half-day slots this year, um, but next year we actually don't plan to have any half-day slots. And, and how many hours is a half-day slot versus a full-day slot? Our current half-day slots are a partnership with Multnomah Early Childhood Program, which is our special education provider for early childhood. So those are the only half-day slots we're currently offering. Their school day is two hours and 45 minutes um, for four days a week currently. So that's not an... um, model that we plan to sustain. That was a special partnership this year as those Multnomah Early Childhood Program slots transition into a school day program, which is really exciting because that means that not only the children um, that are peers, typically developing children in those classrooms receive that school day, but children who have significant special needs who are be served in that classroom will now have a school day slot, which meets a lot more families needs as opposed to a very short half day program. Great. Uh,
5: well. I mean, I know that this is this is brand new, but I, I really enjoyed hearing about how you're working uh, with families uh, that have children with disabilities and having that inclusion coordinator. I think that that's really important, and especially uh, the fact that you're really reaching uh, communities, BIPOC communities, so seeing those numbers really go up uh, for our most marginalized community members. Uh, so, I mean, I know you all have a lot of work to do, but um, you know, I I, I think. You know, and I I know that you're going to receive and have received uh, criticism to go. F- YOU KNOW, FASTER, FARTHER, Uh, BUT uh, I'M HOPEFUL AND I'M EXCITED ABOUT THE FACILITIES FUNDING AND HOPEFULLY THAT WILL REALLY uh, GENERATE uh, MORE CLASSROOMS. Uh, BUT YEAH, I MEAN, I I GUESS, YOU KNOW, IT SOUNDS LIKE YOU'RE DOING AROUND A LOT AROUND THE WORKFORCE. I'M GLAD TO HEAR THAT YOU'RE WORKING WITH WORK SYSTEMS, INC, WHICH I ACTUALLY SIT ON THAT BOARD. SO uh, IT SOUNDS LIKE YOU'VE REALLY KIND OF RALLIED uh, ALL THE RIGHT RESOURCES. Uh, SO HOPEFULLY PEOPLE WILL BE ABLE TO STEP UP, WILL BE WILLING TO INVEST more in their child care businesses and actually i was kind of surprised when you said that 20 percent of child care facilities had gone away since the pandemic i thought it would have been a lot higher real honestly uh but so you know 20 is not great but it's not not quite as bad as as what i thought so i mean i just think that uh you know from nothing to where we are is a uh, remarkable advance and just keep going
4: a question i i don't know i guess we're wrapping up I, but um i just wanted to um understand what the timeline is in terms of the uh tax increase um versus potential moratorium um when that conversation is happening when this board might vote where those considerations are happening because it it does seem to me that um i thought i heard jeff say that but I, I, might not have that. Um, a more, at least a temporary moratorium, would still leave us in a situation where the program itself will not, the underlying program would not be affected. Um, did I hear that correctly?
2: I'll, I'll say. Um, so I'll say this kind of narrowly. The the modeling currently suggests that if we delayed the tax increase by one year to be in line with the moratorium, that we would still be able to fully implement the program as planned.
4: Okay. Um, And I'm just curious, I want to understand what the process is for this board um, in terms of deciding whether um, that would be potentially delayed or not um, when those decisions would be made and if that conversation is happening.
0: So, I'm, I, do you have any other closing comments? Because I'm gonna- and that's
4: and thank you very much. I really appreciate. I really appreciate all of you and um, and your being here today and uh, and all the work that you've put into, just the actual work and um, providing this presentation today. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So, I want to just um, add my thanks to all of you for um, being here today to provide this information. I think these updates are so important, but also for all of the work that you've been doing over the last several months to really bring this um, modeling up to date and get. Um, us a very clear picture of where we stand now and and, um, all of the wonderful things that we're doing with this program. Um, As we move forward, my focus remains on ensuring that this program stays on track to meet the commitments that we've made to voters, to grow sustainably, and to continue to reach our priority populations as we ramp up to full universality. As this board knows, the preschool for all tax rate is set to automatically increase by 0.8% on January 1st, 2026 with board approval. And prior to January 2026, 20, we are to receive a report on the need for that tax increase and the program's revenue requirements. The updated revenue modeling that we've seen today makes one thing clear. This program has the funding its needs to allow us to delay the 08 percent increase for at least one year. <clears throat> excuse me, without any negative impact on our ability to meet our commitments to voters. I want to ensure that as we continue to gather data and lessons from our experiences ramping up Preschool for All, we are able to have a strong and deliberative process as we work to ensure that this program has the resource it needs, remains on track, and is best set up for long term success. For that reason, I will be asking our board to delay the 0.8% tax increase and the deadline for that technical committee report by one year. In the coming weeks, our board will have a public work session where we can dig into this issue and have continued conversations about a one-year delay. After that, I will bring forward an ordinance to our board that would push the tax increase in the technical committee report deadline from January 1st, 2026 to January 1st, 2027. I also wanna remind this board that the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners has full authority to update the ordinance as needed to ensure we have both a fair and effective revenue structure and the resources needed to fulfill our obligation to voters to create a universal preschool program by 2030. That authority includes moving the tax increase state, but could also include things like indexing, which has been brought up today. The critical thing is for this board to have all the information we need to thoughtfully and thoroughly consider any potential changes to the program. And that is why I believe having an additional year of data will also be helpful for any changes that we as a board or the technical committee would need to consider. It is also important for this board to have regular information about the progress of Preschool for All on the road to universality. So board briefings like this one today will continue as we continue to build the system of inclusive, culturally responsive, joyful early education for Multnomah County's children. I'm really grateful for all of the hard work that has gone into getting us to this point, And I look forward to the conversations that we as a board are going to engage in in the coming weeks around this issue. Thank you. So, And I want to thank you all again for that. Thank you. All right. And with that, we are... Can
3: I just have a point of clarification what you said, just so I understand? Yeah. Um it'd be helpful to have for the um to have the actual language from the um, ballot measure just to understand again what the the board's role is because what I heard you say is that if there is an increase um, so appreciate the comments on the on the delay and the ordinance bring brought forward, does the measure actually requires the board to approve the increase?
0: Yes, the board has to improve that oh, Hayden <laughs> Hayden Miller to the staff.
3: Commissioners, for the record, Hayden Miller, Policy Advisor to Chair Vega-Peterson, the tax o- increase is automatic on January first, twenty
0: 2026. Yeah. So, but this board has full authority to make any changes to that, to the ordinance language. Okay, but I thought what I heard you say
3: is that that, say, if there's a future consideration that it wasn't automatic that the board would be voting on the specific increase, the 0.8. But what you're saying, Hayden, is that it's automatic unless the board takes some other action just on on that specific piece. Correct.
0: And to make any changes to it, this board needs to take action, which is why we need to bring something forward that this board would have to um, consider and approve in order for that change to happen. Okay. All right. Thank you all. Lots of good information and lots of good work to come. With that, we are adjourned.
1: Thank you.